Welcome to the Real Python Podcast. This is episode 102. Would you like to build visualizations that allow your audience to play with the data? How do you effectively use Python's assert statement during development? This week on the show, Christopher Trudeau is here, and he's brought another batch of PyCoders Weekly articles and projects. We talk about an article that shows how to build interactive visualizations with Pandas, Seaborn, and IPy widgets. These widgets allow you to add sliders, buttons, and drop-down menus to your Jupyter Notebooks. Christopher shares a RealPython article titled, Python's Assert, Debug and Test Your Code Like a Pro. It covers how to use assert statements to document, debug, and test your code while in development. We cover several other articles and projects from the Python community, including a news roundup, code review guidelines for data science teams, a project to manage your to-do lists using Python and Django, a Python 4 dream list, a static site generator based on Django, and a book of practical Python projects. This episode is brought to you by FusionAuth. FusionAuth is an authentication and authorization platform built for devs by devs. Try FusionAuth for free at fusionauth.io slash download. All right, let's get started. The Real Python Podcast is a weekly conversation about using Python in the real world. My name is Christopher Bailey, your host. Each week, we feature interviews with experts in the community and discussions about the topics, articles, and courses found at realpython.com. After the podcast, join us and learn real-world Python skills with a community of experts at realpython.com. Hey, Christopher, welcome back. Hey there. We're going to keep the trend going of starting with some news items, and you had the first news. Yep. My first bit's about the Toml parser getting added to the standard library in Python 3.11. This is based on PEP 6.80. If you haven't heard about Toml before, it's yet another text-based configuration language. <laughs> Toml stands for Tom's Obvious Minimal Language. And if you've ever played with INI files, I think those are any files for the cool kids in Windows, it's kind of like that. Toml isn't really a Python-specific thing. Uh, it's in a whole bunch of different languages, but it started showing up a lot in the Python world. The format's being used by a lot of the newer packaging tools. Yeah. If you've ever seen pyproject.toml files, that's what I'm talking about. And there's other libraries that have started using it a lot. So PyTest, Black, Coverage, and a bunch of others are all using it to configure them. So it kind of really brings the question out of what took so long. This is one of those cases where the third-party libraries have actually gotten ahead of the standard library. So the standard library is really just kind of catching up now, and that sort of makes sense. So yeah, it's all part of Python 3.11, and it'll be included in October's release. And I think it's already in one of the alphas. Okay, cool. Yeah, the first places I was seeing it several years ago was for like Docker container sort of instructions and setup stuff. Right. Um, and then Brett Cannon has a good article on his blog about Toml. I'll, I'll include that. I think I've mentioned it before, but I'll include that too. Yeah, I like it. I find it a little easier than YAML. It's a little less picky. So for quick config stuff, it uh, it does the trick. Yeah. So mine is building off 
my conversation with Wukaswanga, and he was on episode 82, where I was welcoming him as the CPython developer in residence. And we talked a lot about what he's doing day to day. A lot of the work is on issues and bugs and other things that are happening. There's been a, a resource called bugs.python.org, or BPO for the cool kids, as you say. <laughs> He was mentioning at the time that they were thinking about moving that along with all the other tracking and so forth to GitHub. And that process is moving right along. And he had a post recently talking about it. And so I'll include the links to it. They're looking for feedback on it. They will continue to have sort of the legacy in a read-only state on bugs.python.org, but pretty much everything else is going to be on GitHub. And a lot of it has to do with Getting people to be involved in the project is easier through GitHub, it seems. And also, it's nice to have everything kind of in one place. And so, check it out. It's it's coming soon. <laughs> and there's some important dates that are uh, listed on there. Friday, March 18th, they're doing like a final end-to-end test migration. It, there are a lot, there's a lot of stuff that they have to move over. So, it's not going to just move in one day. So, if you'd like to learn more about that, again... Here's the the link for you in the show notes. Yeah, I, I always find that uh, I will hesitate to fill in a bug report if I have to create an account. Yeah. Because you're immediately into that mode of, okay, who is this and what are they doing with my email address? <laughs> Whereas if, you know, uh, the flip side of it is, you know, GitHub owns everything now. Yeah. But, uh, you know, everyone's there. It kind of just sort of makes sense. Yeah, Definitely. So what was your, we have like a couple little short ones here too. Yep. Just a quick hit on Python 3.11 keeps chugging along. Alpha 6 came out on March 7th. So if you want to play, there's more features there and uh, the, the, the endless march towards October continues. <laughs> Definitely. And mine popped up right while we were planning this episode. Brett Cannon mentioned on Twitter that peps have a new home with a shiny new theme And we were talking so much about PEPs in our last episode together that I thought this would be a a nice nice item to share. So now you can go to PEPs, P-E-P-S dot Python dot org and check out the new site, the new home for PEPs. You land on PEP0, which is the index. The index is really handy. It's got lots of ways of organizing them, you know, not only by what's accepted, um, what's been rejected, you know, what are different ones that are kind of in there. So if if you want to learn more about the language and kind of the future of the language, this is a, another great place to do research. And it's nice to have a new home. And it does look a lot more modern than the old home. So I guess that brings us to topics. You were starting with a real Python one, right? That's right. I'm going to talk about the article, Python's Assert, Debug and Tester Code Like a Pro. Another one by Leodonis Ramos at RealPython. He's one of our more prolific authors. As you probably figure from the title, it's about how to use the assert statement. Assert is kind of like a debug statement, but with some teeth. It allows you to do a sanity check, verifying some condition is true. And if the condition isn't true, it raises an exception, uh, forcing the program to exit. One of the things I had to get used to, I think this is because I've come from other languages, is it's a statement rather than a function, which means if you use parentheses, it can screw you up because those parentheses will actually be treated as a tuple. Okay. 
and non-empty tuples always evaluate to true. So you end up actually passing to assert a true value rather than uh. a the thing you're actually <laughs> trying to test, which is a problem. So it's enough of a problem that the newer versions of Python will actually throw a warning uh, to tell you you probably aren't doing what you want to be doing, uh, but the older ones don't. So depending on what version of Python you're on, you have to be a little careful about that. Okay. So assert takes two arguments, uh, the thing being asserted to be true and an optional message to include in the exception if your condition fails. Uh, It's good practice to put that message in because it can be helpful when you see what went wrong. The conditions themselves can be pretty much anything that you might evaluate for truthiness. So the same kinds of stuff that you put in an if statement. So you can compare values, check for membership in a container, call is instance, you get the idea. The cool thing about this is you can actually turn them off. So you don't actually have to hunt them down in your code and remove them when you're done. Uh, When you use one of the optimization flags, which is dash zero or dash zero zero on the command line, the Python interpreter automatically ignores these. So you can do this. uh, You can also do this with an environment variable. And the article explains, you know, how to use the flags, how to use the variable, and even uh, some of the underlying mechanisms about how all this works, having to do with Dunder debug and other kind of interesting bits about how the stuff works in the background. How often do you use this in your code, like with having the flags as, you know, options? I will admit it's not a tool I use. Okay. Uh, I also tend to be lighter on debug than a lot of people. I I tend to take it out of my code when, uh, so like I leave debug in that I know I might want my logs for later. Yeah. uh, But I tend to turn it off quickly. Uh, Part of this again I'm an old man, and debugging used to be print statements, and so uh, I tend to use the things I was taught when I was a younger man, and uh, (laughs) old habits die hard, or however that works. Yeah, I I wonder about it a little bit, the the idea that you're you're potentially leaving something in there, and you got to kind of think about it. I think it's no different than having, you know, debug statements at with a debug flag or a warning flag. And in, in production, you say only spit out the stuff that's marked as error. Uh, if you're set your environments up correctly to handle this, yeah. it's just another environmental flag. So I think it's just another way of uh, another way of doing things and use what works for you. Yeah, definitely. Auth is a necessary component. But is it really a differentiator for your application? Fusion Auth solves the problem of building essential user security without adding risk or distracting from your primary application. Fusion Auth has all the features you need with great support and a price that won't break the bank. And you can either self-host it or get the fully managed solution hosted in any AWS region. Get started for free at fusionauth.io slash download. Mine is building on something I talked about with David Amos way back in episode 60. He actually had mentioned an article by Matt Wright about iPy widgets. And it was a fairly short article and just sort of showed this idea that if you're in Jupyter Notebooks and you would like interaction in your Jupyter Notebooks, uh, things like sliders or drop-down menus or even like text strings that you could enter in and have be interactive inside of a notebook, iPy widgets might be useful. So 
My article that I'm going to talk about first is called Interactive Visualizations with Pandas, Seaborn, which is a visualization library, and iPy Widgets. It's a Medium article. It's by Zoltan Guba. I, I really like this. <laughs> it was fun to play with. I think people know that I dig messing around with visualizations, and I did a course on Bokeh a, a few years back. The problem very often with data visualizations and things like that is that you're sort of stuck very often with, you know, a certain state that they were in. And the idea with Jupyter Notebooks very often is that you might be sharing that or having like a web version of it or what have you, that it might be useful if it was interactive, that if it had checkboxes for, you know, true false kind of values or text fields or drop downs, that it might be more useful in the beginning of the article just you know shows you the fundamentals of setting up the ipy widgets then it dives into the visualization library has a nice data set that they got off of kaggle i think is how you pronounce that site um that has lots and lots of data and it's uh, ibm hr analytics employee attrition and performance and lots of fields it's a nice data set to, to mess with and it's around like uh, about a quarter of a megabyte so not not too huge but some good information that you can kind of try things out back and forth with it and, you know, common fields that you might want to look at like age or gender or different types of values that you would want to kind of compare across these graphs and plots. And it dives deep into building these interactive plots and graphs. I I find it really easy to think about and, once you have to make something interactive, it literally, once you've imported IPy widgets, it's a really easy layout. You say, okay, make this interactive. And then you put in the different items in there. I think it'll be great for, you know, you as a data science type person, or if you're, you know, doing other forms of analytics for individuals to be able to let the user explore the data um, without them having to you know, do a lot of the programming. So. If you've thought about getting a little deeper into interactivity with your visualizations, iPy Widgets, I think, is a great library for that. And it's a, it's a nice, fairly short article diving into it. Well, the, one of my little favorite corners of the internet, which has nothing to do with Python, is a blog by, and I'm probably not going to get this right, but his name's Bartosz Chernowski. And he does, like, physics explanations. He's only got about a dozen things on his blog, but one of the things he does beautifully is when he tries to explain something like cameras and lenses, he's got little sliders, I'm assuming it's all done in JavaScript, where you know you can change the position of the lens and it shows you the scope and the and how it changes as you move those kinds of things around. So there's a lot of power in explanation by having these tiny little tools. So like you say, if you're trying to build something in Jupyter that is trying to show these pieces in, you know, being able to have certain lines go on or off a graph interactively means the user's going to be that much more invested in what they're looking at and, yeah. and, and it's a lot clearer to them. Yeah, that's the thing I found when I started to create that I felt there's a different ownership, you know, compared to like just leafing through a bunch of graphs somewhere where the person suddenly says, oh, I can adjust this and I can kind of like drill into something. Like you could set like a minimum maximum range and and say, okay, I really want to just pay attention to over the age 40 or something like that. And allowing people to kind of zoom in on that stuff outside of 
like bokeh has like this thing where you can kind of like make a like a lasso and kind of zoom in on data but to actually have it interactively remove portions of it or filter things or what have you i don't know i just, i found people really dug it and it was something that was really common that I felt needed to be added to different projects and leaving it in a, in a notebook, I, I think is really nice. So what do you got next? Well, so not that I don't like hanging out with you, but I have a day job. <laughs> My marketing folks pick, pitch it as a fractional CTO. So what that means is I do consulting for technical teams to help them improve both their technical chops and their processes for producing higher quality code. So this next article just sings to me. It's by a gentleman named Tim Hopper, and it's called Code Review Guidelines for Data Science Teams. And I don't care that it says data science teams in the title. It applies to everybody. Sure. Any If you're coding on a team, a code review is a really important part of that process. And it allows you to sort of have a second set of eyes looking through what is written, hoping to catch bugs or your design flaws. Oftentimes, code reviews end up being about sort of nitpicky stuff, tabs versus spaces, line length, how to spell color, you know, all those things that have obvious answers. <laughs> For the record, spaces, 80, and with a U. But, so this isn't really what code reviews are meant for. So, I, and that's kind of why I'm a fan of tools like Black. Uh, love or hate its choices, it kind of causes the team to go, oh, we're using it, we're not going to argue about the formatting stuff, we're just going to do Black. So the article covers all the good purposes of a code review, such as sharing familiarity over supported sections, getting design feedback, protection from regressive defects, that kind of stuff. And in addition to talking about what gets reviewed, Tim also talks about what a typical code review process looks like, including an important section on what it shouldn't be used for, sniping at your coworkers, for example. So article's short, mostly using bullet points, which is nice, makes it pretty easy to read. And uh, even if you're familiar with it, there's some decent little things in here that you might be able to use to brush up your skills. And at the end, it has some links to other articles on the same subject. Yeah. So you can dig around and see other people's opinions and delve deeper if you want. Yeah, I like that. The inclusion of a handful of other organizations review guidelines, which, you know, you can agree with or disagree with, but they've obviously had to think about them with large teams. <laughs> and uh, so I think that actually is maybe going to be useful for somebody trying to develop their own. I, I think of like code of conduct things where there are sort of standards that are out there and a lot of people share those standards. And I would imagine code review would be a, a really common like set of things that well this has worked and and, and avoided uh full-on breakout fights <laughs> in uh in our organization so i like the uh the google's code review guideline little note the a key point here is that there is no such thing as perfect code there is only better code which i agree with uh, you, you know it's always going to be improving Speak for yourself. Every single line I write is perfect. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Hopefully, we can avoid the uh, reviewing each other's code. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we'll stay friends that way. That sounds good. Excellent. <laughs> right. I'll just review your videos. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> All right. My next one is a RealPython step-by-step -step project, and it's by a brand-new team member to the RealPython team, uh, Charles DeVier. Again, it's a project. It's Django, which I dig. Um, I'm every time I, I play with it, I get a little bit further in. 
In this case, you're building a to-do list manager app. And so the title is manage your to-do lists using Python and Django. In it, you are building a pretty full function to-do list manager that can not only have multiple lists, but the list items, your actual to-dos, have quite a few details in them, you know, beyond descriptions and a due date uh, and other things. And I, I really see it as a jumping off point where you could really see, okay, well, my to-do manager needs these additional features or whatever that you could kind of enlarge a project and, and make it much more detailed. I found it a really thorough project. Um, I went through it yesterday afternoon and built the thing. <laughs> you know, the first steps are, as usual, setting up like your virtual environment and Django and then testing, making sure that, you know, Django's up and running and everything there. And then you're scaffolding the project out, building your data models, deciding, you know, okay, what type of database that you're going to use. And then you do a little bit in the admin interface and just kind of make some simple uh, to-dos that you can kind of see things in there. And then from there, you spend a lot of times where Django, the heart of it is building views and templates and then working with request handlers and updating the models to do additional features. Like, okay, well, we still need to be able to delete things and we need to be able to you know, define that connections and those confirmation URLs. It's a really nice project. And I think people will get a lot out of it going through and learning a little more about class-based views is how he approached it in this particular case. Uh, and so there's a little bit of the object-oriented programming that you you see in often a lot of Django projects. And it's nice looking. I think it's something that would be a nice project to share. He used uh, another... CSS library that I wasn't familiar with. I think in the next steps, he talks about how you could go in and enhance it even more. It's a one called simple.css. You know, it's similar. Look, I'm trying to remember the one. Bul Bulma? <laughs> the one that I did a couple weeks back with Martin. Bootstrap's the one that I've used the most. But um, these, it's a, a, again, it's like a one line, line added to your base HTML to, to get some nice looking results. And yeah, he has lots of his suggestions for next steps, how to make it multi-user, even deeper with class-based views, and then uh, things like you know hosting and adding additional stuff to it. So another nice step-by-step -step project can get you a little deeper into working with Django. Yeah, and he's got some nice bits in there too as well, both uh, you know uh, under Windows versus under Unix. Uh, yeah. So, you know, depending on your system, you've uh, you got examples of both. Uh, Django's just so big, right? So uh, I think uh, particularly for new users trying to figure out where to get, where to dig their teeth in, how to get going uh, can be very daunting. Uh, so articles like this one where, you know, you got a little project, you got something you can kind of work on. This is, you know, go, goes back to the conversation we were having uh, a while back about uh, how do you learn your new Python stuff? Well, having something to do and to work on <laughs> can uh, can make a big difference. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny because the, the Django, the Django project, <laughs> their first project is this poll, which is a, a very interesting first project. And then, you know, a handful of other ones that are out there. Our, our most famous one is a uh, one where you're building a portfolio app. And I've seen that in a few other places. But I like seeing people using Django in other ways that are kind of more like an actual 
like application where potentially other users are going to be interacting with it. And and so you have to kind of think about it a little differently than like maybe how you would approach, you know, creating a portfolio or something like that in this. And so it's another good view into those things. This week, I want to shine a spotlight on another RealPython video course. It's about a segment of data science involved in making predictions based on data. It's titled Building a Neural Network and Making Predictions with Python AI. The course is based on an article by Deborah Mesquita, and in the course, Douglas Starnes takes you through how both machine learning and deep learning play a role in AI, how a neural network functions internally, what are weights and vectors, how to reduce prediction error, and how to build a neural network from scratch using Python. Like most of the video courses on RealPython, the course is broken into easily consumable sections. You get code examples for the techniques shown, and all courses have a transcript, including closed captions. Check out the video course. You can find a link in the show notes, or you can find it using the search tool on realpython.com. Next was a bit of a discussion point, which I think we're going to make kind of a theme going forward, which I like that idea. So what are we covering this time? So there there was a conversation going on in uh, Reddit. Somebody had posted the question, if there was ever to be a Python 4, not a minor version, but a full-fledged new Python, what would you like to see in it? There's a good conversation going. It very, very quickly uh, meant straight to multi-threading and the gill. Yeah. Uh, And uh, and, (laughs) you know, uh, Godwin's law that that any conversation of sufficient length on the internet always brings up Hitler. Yeah. Uh, Well, (laughs) I'm going to propose Armin's law, and that's any Python conversation of sufficient length always brings up the gill, because that seems to be where things go to very, very quickly. Uh, there's some interesting things in here, as often happens with these kinds of conversations. There's some stuff in there that really wouldn't need Python for. Yeah. Somebody called for deprecating all string formatting except for F strings, which is probably controversial, but because I like F strings, I kind of thought that was an interesting idea. Right. There's a bit in there about uh, standardizing the standard library against PEP 8. Um, and I, I know that's something that always drives me nuts. I'm, I, I go looking for snake case on things and uh, the older stuff, it isn't. <laughs> so that's kind of there. The one that I really want, and I don't know that it really requires four, but I'd love a way to have multi-line strings that are indented the way that your code is, but the compiler gets rid of the leading spaces for you automatically. Hmm. So there's a function in Python that does this, but that always feels like this extra stuff to me that you have to call the function on the string, and I just want it built into the compiler. I can't remember. I was using some meta language recently was like one of the json extensions or something like that and they had like a different quote set that took care of this for you and it just feels nice because i like my indentation and and multi-line strings you always end up with like this line of code and then everything's outdented it looks weird to me so anything you i (laughs) i had to think about this for a while and i don't have any real strong opinions or strong items on my wish list I think my biggest wish list item is that we don't move to a version four <laughs> anytime soon. That one came up a bit in the discussion yeah. as well. Yes. Yeah. Cause as an outsider, 
when I went to get my first job in Python, which is in 2018, I had to ask because there was still kind of a, a bit of a fracas going out there as far as like, well, what should we be doing as far as projects in Python 2.7 or at the time, I think it was 3.6. And I had to ask my my potential future employer, well, what do you guys use? <laughs> you know? And they were like, oh yeah, we're only Python three. And I was like, okay, good. Okay, great. So I don't have to dive deep into that stuff unless I'm potentially researching something or other projects. Most of the stuff we were building new. And so that was really nice to be able to have that focus. But I just, from the sidelines, you know, watched <laughs> the drama for whatever it was of Python two seven people jokingly having the death clock and all these other kinds of things. And, you know, and then also a lot of people that are in organizations having to move th- stuff forward and deal with that large code base potentially and, and migrating it over. And I'm not super interested in, in, you know, breaking changes in a version four. I know that means we're gonna have some interesting version numbers going forward. We're already at 311 <laughs> coming up. And so I, and a lot of the things that I'm interested in, and we've talked about a lot on the show is, uh, you know, speed is coming in the next versions. Uh, 311, I don't know, it's like maybe a 45% bump already. There's the, the gill may dis- disappear in later versions of three. Uh, so I don't know if that if that's on the roadmap, I think they're still kind of working out all the different versions of three. And then the, probably the biggest thing is that I see so many of the core developers and the handful of people that I've you know personally spoken to are not super interested in moving into a version four. So I really don't want a non-compatible break, you know, uh, into a new version number. If I was to say, what would I like? I would like it to work better on mobile, sure, but like I don't know if that needs to be in the standard library. The same thing with a better GUI framework, um, which is maybe even related inside that. And then there's a lot of people that talked about the idea of it, you know, of it being compiled. And I don't know. I don't know if that's you know some of the answers that we want. Um, and so yeah, I, I guess it's more like a, a trepidation. <laughs> Of like, really? We're going to go to four already? (laughs) There's, yeah, well, well, random conversation on Reddit doesn't mean anything's going to happen, of course. Right, exactly, yeah. But uh, yeah, there's definitely a lot of scar tissue out there. Uh, And the thing I found in the conversation, that there were a fair number of things that were good ideas that I don't think necessarily needed a four. Mm. And, you know, when I say four, I really mean a, you know, breaking change, right? Obviously, we can start numbering it whatever we want. Right. But, you know, does it have to actually be a breaking change? I think also learning from the experience from two to three, there may be things that may make a transition easier uh, if you sort of go at it again. Sure. You know, you you sort of, hopefully everyone kind of learns from their mistakes and see what happens. The gills, one of those things that for pure Python could disappear and no one would care. Uh, but for all the underlying C plugins, they probably aren't going to be able to easily change that 
without having an impact on all the plugins. Yeah. So, uh, you know, that starts to become a bit of a problem at some point. And like you said, things like the GUI, those probably shouldn't never have been included in the standard library in the first place. Yeah. Using outside, you know, using outside framework uh, would make sense. Yeah. It's um, the language has become so popular and it's being used by such a a diverse group of people that you're always going to find there's always a corner where if you did this, it'll make things better for me. And I guess that's how we get progress. Uh, it, it also makes it harder to learn it all. Yeah, that's some of the stuff I think about. People really are picky about some of the stuff that has been added, you know, the arguments over the Waller's operator. And I definitely, again, along the sidelines, not being a core developer, just watching stuff, I feel like the match statement match case has been absorbed and uh, not as angrily disputed. (laughs) Uh, Maybe I'm not in the right circles to to watch it, but I I just feel like it wasn't as intense as what was happening with the, you know, something like the Wallace operator and some of those other changes or just, you know, even in our own conversations, you know, type checking is still something that, I don't know, is that something that would help with, a new version to, to, you know, make it even deeper of that? Or does it need to be something like the JavaScript TypeScript thing, you know, where like it's completely different language at that point and you kind of are developing something that is type specific. So I don't know. I, I'm not a computer science major and I haven't studied the origins of operating systems. I definitely want to learn more. It's one of the reasons that I, I, um, these changes to, the parser have been super interesting to me and I've been learning more about that. And I want to get a few people on the show to talk about that a little more. Like I've I thought about getting Pablo on to talk about it because he's been adding a lot of the really interesting stuff using the new parser for all those you know much better error messages in Python 3.10. And I guess that is continuing in 3.11, which I, I think is going to be those are the kinds of things that I think is going to make the language more approachable in some ways, you know, and then it always depends on what you want to do with it. You know, like data science is its whole own other beast and learning about how to use that and so forth is, is going to be separate journey that you're going to go on. <laughs> and I, I don't know if there needs to be a separate Python languages, you know, it can be just these packages and other things that people use in, in those circles. So. Yes, yeah, so, I mean, I guess the conversation is is good that people are talking about things, but again, I'm I'm in no hurry for a Python four, and with this release schedule of every year, I'm I'm kind of uh, just interested to see the things that they're adding in in the next upcoming versions. Fair enough. I guess that brings us to projects. We're moving right along today. <laughs> yep, speeding along. Yeah. So uh, the project I'm going to talk about is. Django Distill. Uh, I was super happy to put this project on our recommendation list. It deserves more love. Creator goes by the handle Meeb, M-E-E-B. I couldn't find their real name. Their homepage is a funky animation with an email address and a link to GitHub. So Meeb it is. There you go. Uh, If you haven't come across this one before, it's a static site generator. And uh, static site generators are templating mechanisms for creating websites that don't require any server-side code. So you can include browser-side interactions like JavaScript, but the server is only responsible for serving the pages. So this typically means, you know, no database interactions. 
So a big number of websites can actually just be static sites. So years ago, I worked at a company that had about a dozen web properties for kids and parents of young kids. And I'd guess about 80% of their content was static. You'd use editing tools to create it, but when a page is published, it's simply output to the right spot in Apache. You can get crazy scaling out of this because uh, there's no database and, and there's no application servers. So we were handling 40 million hits a month using this kind of tech with very few servers. Like you, you don't really need some hardcore stuff because it's just the simple stuff. And as CDNs have become popular, that allows you to do things like put the content out on the CDNs, which puts your content local to the users as well. So it can be a huge performance game. Yeah. Okay. So a couple of years back, I needed to redo my company's site. And so I went looking for a static site generator because uh, it's really just marketing stuff. And there's lots of popular ones out there, but most of them expect you to learn some new templating language and tool set. And then I stumbled upon Distill. So how Distill works is you write a Django project. You test everything locally with your Django dev server and with a few small changes to the URL routing code, you're ready to go. You run a management command and Distill goes through all the URLs in your project and creates static web pages in an output directory. So the beauty of this for someone like me who does a lot of Django is I didn't have to learn anything new. 10 minutes with the instructions for changes to the earls.py file and I was good. You've, so if you've already got a Django site, there's a good chance you could turn this into a high-performing static site with very little work. And if you don't have a Django site, but you're familiar with Django, it allows you to build the site using the tools that you're familiar with. So go give me another star on GitHub. This project really deserves it. Cool. At that point, you've created a static site. How would you serve it up? So for so my corporate site, the hosting account I have gives me access to a Nginx directory. So I simply just zip up the output directory and unzip it on the uh, in the correct Nginx directory and go. Okay. And things like CDNs work in a in a similar fashion as well. You need the account with the CDN or however they're all picked up, but you're essentially just transferring the files. So SSH to the right place and you're good. Okay. Cool. Yeah, that sounds good. Like I I think that might be handy for a lot of people. Again, I know there's other solutions for making static sites, but you know, so many of the projects that we've been sharing lately have been, you know, kind of Django based. And if this could work for you, if you were to add new content, then you would just kind of go through the, the process of just distilling it, quote unquote, again. That's right. Yeah. Okay. So I, I've used it for, photo, you know, vacation photo albums, digital photo albums, and I, you just go back in, add another page the same way you would in Django. And instead of having to set up a server somewhere running Django and all the rest of it, you rerun it and go. And if you're a Unix geek, you can use tools like rsync that are smart enough to just send the different files rather than the whole thing. So yeah, you can get, uh, you can get pretty efficient with it. Nice. My project is a whole book of projects that was on uh, PyCoders this week, and it's really a neat book. And it's available for purchase also, but the author, Yesub Khalid, it's called Practical Python Projects Book. That's its title. <laughs> and I'm just going to look at the numbers here. If I go through the table of contents... There's, let's see, uh, I think like 12 different projects. There's 14 different chapters. I'll just read off some of them. But again, on the show, we've shared 
the idea that if you really want to get better as a developer, you need some projects to build. Kind of try things out. And, and even if you take existing projects and modify them to your own needs or uh, update them in, in your own way, it's such a great way to not only you know learn and get more comfortable with stuff, but to showcase your work. And this is a really good set of them. And it uses a lot of technology and definitely would show off your ability to integrate you know, things like chapter three is all about making invoices. And in that particular case, you're generating PDFs from HTML. And it actually uses a, a library that I wasn't familiar with. It's uh, called Wheezy Print <laughs> with a W. I started looking at it and the the project is uh, supported by Open Collective, which is kind of builds on this conversation that I had with Josh Simmons in supporting open source projects. And so it's one of those that that there is this need to have PDF support and ongoing printability and so forth uh, as an open source tool and and have support that it continues to be maintained. So I'm interested in trying that one out and seeing what it can do. But the idea is to you know take HTML and pretty easily turn it into PDFs. So this one is you know making dynamic ones that you can get values from a client and 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 kind of build up there. One of them is kind of playing with the Twilio system and it's a FIFA World Cup Twilio bot. There's another there's a, a few that are kind of aggregators like an article summarizer an automated image generator there's a a bot for Reddit and Facebook a cinema pre-show generator which is basically grabbing a whole bunch of trailers which I, all this stuff is fun like I, I have talked about this with Al Swigert before that often when you make projects, one of the biggest tricks is that, is this something that, that is just sort of, you know, a a proof of concept, but you're not interested in probably showing other people it, you know, (laughs) would a friend of yours be like interested in in seeing this project running? And I think something like the cinema pre-show generator would be kind of fun in the sense that it's going to, you know, grab all these trailers and stuff. That was, you know, something I would do on on a Saturday afternoon with my wife. I would, we would just sit down and all right, well, what are all the different trailers? Because we haven't been to the movies in so long, (laughs) you know, like what's what's going on and exactly. (laughs) And then, uh, Understanding decoding JPEG images, uh, making a TUI, uh, that's a text user interface email client, a music video downloader, another one where you're deploying Flask to production. And almost all of them, it looks like every one of them has like a next steps section. How could you enhance this? How could you, you know, kind of continue on from it? And so anyway, he's been working on this thing. It looks by reading kind of the beginning of it since like 2018. I, I think you get a lot out of it. I, I found that there is a GitHub repository with the projects on it. So you can kind of get the code listings and maybe the requirements files and so forth to learn a little more about it. If you need some help kind of following along with it or you want to see how it looks all assembled. So yeah, it's a, it's a great book, great resource. And yeah, you know, if you can... I would suggest, you know, supporting him, but again, it being available as a website, I think is great too. If you do check it out, you know, give him some feedback and let him know that you like it. 
Yeah, I like how it's organized too, right? So the, the chapters are divided up into little sections. Yeah. So for example, like if you want to pick up some QT, but you don't want to do the full music downloader project, sure. there's a section titled Basic QT App underneath that. And and even as a standalone article, it shows you, okay, how do you get QT going and how do you use that in Python, right? Yeah. And uh, there's a lot of depth here too. So the the, the chapter on JPEG is hardcore. <laughs> so yeah. he gets into how encoding works and how to deal with binary data in Python. So normally a tutorial like this would, like when you see the heading JPEG decoding, you'd be expected, this is how you use Pillow. Yeah, This is actually talking about the binary format of JPEG, right? So like he's right down to what the headers look like, all the rest of it, and how to interact with that with Python. So so there's some really deep content in here uh, for all sorts of levels of programmers. Uh, so if you're just getting started, there's stuff here. And if you, uh, you want to learn something deep about how JPEG data works, that's there for you too. Yeah, there's a one uh, scraping Steam using LXML, which is another scraping sort of tool. And I think this might be fun. Again, both of us are into video games, but the idea is that you could have it go look through like new releases or other things like that and kind of pull information out. But I think the power of this thing is you playing with all these other libraries and then maybe that's going to spark ideas for you to see how you could maybe incorporate that technology in other places. And again, if you add all these things to your portfolio, it really shows that, <laughs> I, I don't know, for, for me, like I, a most common thing that happens as a programmer is that you're presented with a problem and then knowing what the different tools are that are even just available to you to try to solve that uh, is is the most common thing. And, and often it involves these third-party libraries or open source tools and just getting familiar with how they work and kind of implementing them a little bit is just going to make you a much more flexible programmer. Yeah, there's really sort of three levels, right? You, you, there's learning the syntax of the language, learning the functions and things that come with the language, and then there's learning all the libraries that go with the language. <laughs> yeah. And uh, that last one is never ending, right? Yeah, totally. Yeah. And, you know, so it's always like a survey of like, okay, well, you know, when was the book written? <laughs> so this is a really recent book, came out in January. So you're going to be seeing, you know, pretty recent tools that are out there and, and being used. And uh, so anyway, I, I, I think it's a great resource and check it out. Yep. Good stuff. All right. Well, thanks, Christopher. It's been fun talking again, and I, I look forward to uh, us improving on this new format that we have here. Well, two episodes from now, we'll be talking about Python 5, so be ready for it. Oh, okay. And don't forget, do you have a side project that needs custom login and registration, multi-factor authentication, social logins, or user management? Download FusionAuth for free at fusionauth.io slash download. I want to thank Christopher Trudeau for coming on the show this week. And I want to thank you for listening to The Real Python Podcast. Make sure that you click that follow button in your podcast player. And if you see a subscribe button somewhere, remember that The Real Python Podcast is free. If you like the show, please leave us a review. You can find show notes with links to all the topics we spoke about inside your podcast player or at realpython.com slash podcast. And while you're there, you can leave us a question or a topic idea. I've been your host, Christopher Bailey, and I look forward to talking to you soon.